Thank you again, Gene. That was great. That was awesome. Do you guys know how hard it is to read that length of Scripture and keep our attention? I uh, told Gene in the first service I could have listened to her all day read Scripture like that. And uh, you guys should be proud that you did as well. And we live in a soundbite culture. Uh, a lot of churches wouldn't read that length of Scripture because, you know, they'd be afraid of boring the people or whatever. But I don't know about you, I don't tend to get bored with the Word of God. And uh, it's life to us. And that's a story that all of you have heard uh, since childhood. I mean, gosh, if there are two things that probably every American has ever heard out of the book of Daniel, it's Daniel in the lion's den, and then that story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. But I tell you what I want to do in the rest of our time this morning here. I, I want us to, to, to jettison our childlike views of this story, because we all heard it in Sunday school, and I want us to take an adult look at it. I think there's some stuff in here for us as adults that is quite mind-boggling and life-changing if we will let it be. You'll see what I mean as we go along. So let's pray now that God would give us an adult-like view of this story that we all know from childhood. Father, we do thank you for your word. We believe here at Scottsdale Bible that it's inerrant, it's true, it's life to our souls, and so we rally around it on a regular basis. And so, fathers, we've hopefully focused our minds and calmed our hearts through worship and then heard the scriptures read to us by Gene. I pray, God, that we're primed now to talk about it and what this means for us today and how we can walk out of here in about a half an hour, uh, people equipped for the week ahead. God, if I don't miss my guess, we come in with a lot of diversity here this morning. Some of us are flying high and some of us are not doing so well. But Lord, we know you have something for all of us. Speak to us now, we pray through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, a few weeks ago, I woke up early on a Saturday morning. I still had some work to do on my message for Sunday. And so I came downstairs. I started a pot of coffee, Starbucks decaf. I find that I don't need caffeine to get me wound any more than I already am. And I grabbed a a bowl of cereal and was going to watch the news before I got into my message for that morning. Captain Crunch, that's my favorite kind of cereal. I know, I'm still a kid, but I just love that stuff. And so I sat down and I was watching the news. And as I was turning to my favorite news channel, I landed for just a brief second on one of those religious channels. And for some reason, I paused just to see what they were talking about at 6.30 a.m. on a Saturday morning. And wouldn't you know, I was watching one of those once-a-year telethons that they do where they have people sitting in front of a bunch of phones and they bring in a bunch of select preachers and pastors to spend a few minutes doing what I call the ask. And this particular pastor, who obviously got the red-eye slot on Sunday or Saturday morning, was talking about how you need to sow your financial seed, meaning give to that particular ministry, for God to bless or cause financial blessings in your life. A lot of us have heard this before who have watched TV preachers. It's a biblical word picture, that of sowing and reaping, that is taken somewhat out of context by a lot of TV preachers when they talk about financial giving. But this time he added an even new twist that I'd never heard before that really got my attention. See if you can follow this logic. He said the supply is there from God waiting to be released to us But we must exercise a demand on the supply. And when we exercise a demand through giving to his particular ministry, God is then bound to release the supply in our lives. Supply, demand, and then release of blessings. And he kept repeating this phrase, and I quote, exercising a demand on on the supply over and over again, insinuating that God is bound to release the supply of his blessings only when we put a demand on them, in this case through giving to his particular ministry. 
And all I could think, folks, as I sat there watching this, was what a terrible and even dangerous theology this was. I thought, what an awful misunderstanding of who God is and how He functions in our lives. I mean, to think that God is going to somehow acquiesce to our demandingness like an irresponsible father acquiesces to the demandingness of his three-year-old who is spoiled. I mean, it's just ludicrous. And irony of ironies, as I sat there watching this a few Saturday mornings ago, I had already done my study break in January on the first half of the book of Daniel, and I had already titled my message on Daniel chapter 3, the chapter we're looking at today, and I had entitled it, A Non-Demanding Trust. Is that not ironic? I'm listening to a pastor basically say the opposite, say that we need to put a demand on God's supply when we trust him. I read Daniel 3 and walked away saying, no, I think it's a non-demanding trust. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. I want to talk to you about how I truly believe that the best way you and I approach God, and I think these three men in the story are going to teach us this, is in a non-demanding and yet very, very trustful way. I think that's what's going on in this. I think that God wants you and I to trust Him with everything in us, each moment of each day. We all know that. But the attitude that you and I bring to this trust, how we approach God with this trust, I believe is greatly going to determine our experience of Him and even how He responds to us when we do trust Him. So let's review the story that we heard read earlier. We all know it from Sunday school when we were young. Daniel has three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Easy to remember those names, your shack, my shack, and a bungalow. If you can remember that, you just remembered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? And we know that these three Jewish teenagers are in Babylon. They've been exiled there. Their nation has been taken captive. And they're there with Daniel and a bunch of other Jews in around 605 B.C. And they're under a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. And and they've been promoted uh, in chapter 2 to a high place of leadership within Babylon. Very, very unusual for teenagers to be promoted to leadership in a political societal realm. But they were. And the reason they were, as we know from a couple weeks ago, is that Daniel had interpreted the king's dream in chapter 2 rightly, even miraculously, and his friends had helped him with their prayers and maybe even with their wisdom. And so these three guys and Daniel were promoted uh, within the kingdom there. Daniel is now back in the city of Babylon, where modern-day Iraq is now, and his three friends are gallivanting across the countryside, making political and societal decisions, and everything's going great. So far, so good. But you might remember that Nebuchadnezzar is a really prideful man, very much full of himself. I know it's hard to picture a political leader full of pride and arrogance, but stretch yourself just a little bit here, and that's Nebuchadnezzar. And so what he does in this chapter is kind of weird. He decides to build a huge golden image, a statue, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide on the plain of Dora. Historians' best guess is that the plain of Dora was about 16 miles south of Babylon at that time. And he calls all the leaders of the empire, everybody from governors to princes to judges, and has them all bow down and worship to this statue. We don't know if this statue was of Nebuchadnezzar himself or of one of the fictitious gods of Babylon, but we do know that it was huge and stunning and that Nebuchadnezzar wanted everyone to bow down and worship as a sign of their allegiance to him and to Babylon. The only problem was that for the Jews in exile, they couldn't do this. 
It's the first and second commandments for crying out loud. It says you should have no other gods before me. You should not make yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is heaven above, that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 7 through 9. Pretty straightforward stuff. Judaism 101. You don't bow down to other gods. And so there's no way that the Jews could do this. They'd be going against God himself. And so they don't. At least Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't. Daniel's back in Babylon in the king's court, so he's off the hook. But these guys are in the public eye there, on the plain of Dora. They're leaders, and it stands out that they don't bow. So the tattletales tell the king about this, and the text says in verse 13 of chapter 3 that he was in a furious rage. Two Aramaic words that Daniel 3 was written in that literally mean extreme anger. Simply note that the king was offended and he was ticked. And so he hauls these three young Jewish men before him and demands that they bow. He gives them one last chance to bow or else he's going to cast them into the fiery furnace. Don't miss this, folks. The furnace that was already set up there. The same furnace that was most likely used to build that statue, to melt the gold and the bricks for this huge statue. That was the furnace on the plain of Dura. You see, this was one of Nebuchadnezzar's favorite forms of execution. Jeremiah would tell this uh, about this in his book in verse 22 of chapter 9, that Nebuchadnezzar would burn two other Jews eventually in this furnace as a punishment for their disobedience. A furnace that would reach temperatures of up to 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, it's a terrible way to die. And folks, it is right at this point in the story that some of the most important words ever spoken in the Old Testament come into play. Right at this point that Nebuchadnezzar is telling these three men to bow or be thrown into the fiery furnace, look at what happens next. Look at verses 16 to 18. This is the core of Daniel 3. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And so verse 16 isn't simply another way of saying, we don't even have to think about this, Nebuchadnezzar. It's a no-brainer for us. But then look at verses 17 and 18 and focus on those two seemingly insignificant but actually potent phrases. And they are the phrases, is able, in verse 17. You see that there, is able. And then that phrase, if not, in verse 18. If not. And folks, if there were ever two seemingly insignificant phrases that carry rich and livable theology about God and life, these do. These do. First, notice that these men say, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. Is able. And I would submit to you that that's simply faith operating there. It's pure and unadulterated faith. God is able. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a great author from the last century, says this, and I quote, he says, faith is the refusal to panic. It's the refusal to panic. And that's exactly what's going on here. These three guys are absolutely convinced of God's existence and His power and His ability to save them, and they refuse to panic. And it's interesting, though, the ESV, the translation we're using, goes on to have them say, and He, God, will deliver us. 
What some respected Bible scholars point out is that it might be better translated, He may deliver us. That the original language leaves room for either translation because this better fits the context. Look what happens next in verse 18. It brings us to the second seemingly insignificant phrase. It says, But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. If not... So they're saying that though we believe God is able to deliver, if not, it doesn't change an iota about who God is, and we're still going to serve Him because He's still good and faithful. Are you starting to see, folks? It's a non-demanding yet incredibly powerful trust that they have here. The kind of trust that banks on God's power and goodness and even asks Him for it, but then leaves it up to Him to decide how best to deliver it. You know, commenting on this exact set of verses out of Daniel 3, I love how Stephen Miller, a scholar in his own right, puts it. Look up here on the screen. He says, God is able to deliver them, but it might not be his will to do so. The Hebrews then believed that God could, but not necessarily would, spare their lives. Interesting. Is able, but if not. So in applying this to us, look at what Miller goes on to say. I like this. He says, here's a pertinent lesson for believers today. Does God have all power? Yes. Is God able to deliver believers from all problems and trials? Yes. But does God deliver believers from all trials? No. He says the purpose of trials may not always be understood, but God simply asks that his children trust him even when it is not easy. Please see this, folks. It's a non-demanding trust that's going on here. And I would argue that this is the right way for you and I to approach God this side of heaven. This is the way that he asks us, as we're going to see over and over in the word again, to approach him in our relationship with him. And so here's your main point this morning. Here's the only thing I ask you guys to remember uh, from today. And that is that we experience God's faithfulness then when we trust him in a non-demanding way. I think that's the whole message of Daniel 3 that we experience God's faithfulness in our lives, just like those three guys did, when we trust him in a non-demanding way. Now, just so that we're all on the same page as to what this is about, I want to share with you three components, three building blocks, if you will, because they're going to build one upon another that make up a non-demanding trust. Three things that the Bible affirms and champions like all over the place, and even here in Daniel 3, three things that you must have without which you will not have a non-demanding trust. And they are this. I'll give you all three up front. And that is that we trust that God can, we ask that God will, and we then receive whatever God gives. Gosh, I'm telling you, if you can have these three things in your walk with the Lord, you will rock in what he does in your life. Whether he delivers you or whether he gives you peace and a sense of his presence, you will almost say it doesn't matter because a non-demanding trust believes or trusts that God can. It asks that God will, but then it receives from his hand whatever he chooses to give. And I would submit to you that this is a biblically framed, God-pleasing kind of faith that will both allow you to know and experience him intimately as well as follow him through everything. Uh, Let's break this down. Look at the first building block of a non-demanding trust. We we say that you need to trust that God can. Where do we get this? Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20 couldn't be more clear. It says, now to him, God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, 
according to his power that is at work within us. That's God. He has no limits. His power has no top end. God never gets into like red line when he's driving fast. That's God. There's no way we can conceive of him ever topping out in his power. And isn't it interesting? It says here that even if you could, even if God could top out in his power, we would never be able to know it anyways. We couldn't even imagine what that would be like. God is that powerful. And notice that it says here that God wants to unleash this power in our lives. He says it's a power that is at work within us, in our lives, and through our world. So the first step to approaching God, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, is to trust that God can, that there's nothing too great for him to do, no problem too hard for him to solve. You and I need to believe that. We'll never get anywhere with God if we don't believe in his sovereignty, in his omnipotence, his omniscience, and in all the power that is available and in him. And then, once we've cemented this, we're ready to move on to the second component that makes up a non-demanding trust, and that is that we then ask God that he will. So you believe that he can, then you ask that he will. Jesus taught us this all the time, and he couldn't have been more clear. Look at what he taught us in his famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. I love this. He says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for a bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? I love the logic of Jesus here. He's simply pointing out that God is good and gracious and that he's in the habit of wanting to give good and gracious things to his children. And so we should be in the habit of asking on a regular basis. And I don't know if you caught this or not, but Jesus is even suggesting here that when we ask, it's good to ask with hope, even an expectation that God just might give us what we ask. Man, that should be really liberating for a lot of us, right? That if we ask for some bread, we hope for bread, not a stone. Or if we ask for some fish, we hope for fish and not a snake. We can ask clearly the desires of our heart and hope for it from God. But note that this is different from a demand, right? Very subtle, but very important distinction. Jesus is not giving you and I the freedom here to demand something from God. He's saying ask and ask with hope and expectation. So this isn't putting some supply on some demand out there. It's just a gracious Heavenly Father who knows a lot more than you and I do, who's the giver of all good gifts, just not always in the way that our finite minds might think. And so here's how you and I know whether we're asking expectantly and with hope or with a demanding attitude that's more like a spiritual toddler, and that is that we experience or we are able to add a third component to our trust equation. This one brings it all together, and that is that we receive whatever God gives. We receive what God gives. You know, the Old Testament actually gives us a poster child for this third aspect of of trust and faith. Somebody who just epitomizes what it means to receive from God's hand whatever he gives. You guys know who it is? It's Job, right? It's Job. I mean, Job was a guy who experienced great blessings from God, awesome times of, uh, of just experiencing wonderful things from him, but then also times of great famine that were also part of God's sovereign will for his life. And though a struggle, he received both from God and never doubted his goodness. 
Look at what Job says during one of those not-so-blessed times. Look at Job 1, verse 21. It says, And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then as if that were not enough, one chapter later when he then loses his health and his wife tells him to curse God and die and be done with it, look at what he says in chapter 2 of verse 10. He says, Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive also evil? Uh, Folks, don't miss this. Job had learned the secret of a non-demanding trust. He believed fully in God's capability to act powerfully in and through his life. And so we find him asking God for this over and over again through his ordeals. But he also knew that God was good and sovereign. And that to receive from his hand what he gives is critical to staying connected with him. G.K. Chesterton, a very wise and witty author from the last century, says it this way. Look up here on the screen. He says, courage is almost a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live taking the form of a readiness to die. That's a non-demanding faith. A strong desire to live, trusting in God's ability that he can and that asking him that he even would, but then being able to, to accept, live or die, what he gives from his hand. I'm telling you, these are the three building blocks of a non-demanding faith. Trust, ask, and accept. If you do this, you'll be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who believed that God was able, but if not, he's still faithful, and he's still good, and you can still trust him. And so the only question I have for you, and I'm going to ask it twice in the few minutes that we have remaining, is simply this. What's it going to be for you? Like, isn't that the key? That once we get this, and once we cement what our spiritual lives are supposed to be about, what's it going to be for our lives? Because i got to tell you, folks, I find that many, many Christians today, tell me if this isn't true, place a lot of subtle demands on God, don't we? (laughs) We're just so good at it. I don't think we mean to. I just think we're good Americans. We feel entitled to a good life, and we end up dragging this into our relationship with God with an attitude that says, I better get this from you, God, or I'm not sure that we're okay. And the subtlety is, is that nobody ever says it overtly. I mean, like right now, we're in a recession. Anybody notice that? Right, we're in a recession. It's bad. I was just in my friend's hometown recently, Detroit. It's bad. We thought Detroit was bad in the 90s. It's bad. And a lot of people are struggling here, too, as well. And as I interact with people, I find that there's a subtle attitude that creeps in that says, God, I can endure this for a little while, but it better get better as I follow you, or maybe you aren't who you say you are. Again, no one says that. I just sometimes wonder if that's not part of our attitude. Or have you ever thought like this? You know, I raised three pretty good kids. I've loved them. I poured into them. I took them to Sunday school. I sent them to Christian school. I did devotions with them. And now they're messing up. What's that about, God? You said that if I train them up in the way they should go, they won't depart from it. So what's going on? Or how about marriage? I hear some people say, you know what? I've been faithful to my wife. I've loved her. I've done everything right. I know to do. I've read Gary Chapman books. I've done all this stuff. And now things are going downhill. What's that about, God? How about your physical health? You say, you know what? I don't eat Captain Crunch like my pastor does. I, I take care of my body. I work out. I do all this other stuff. And yet I'm struggling in these physical areas of my life. God, is that the reward I get for living a good life? Do you see how Christians think? Our emotions don't work like we thought they would. We're depressed. We're anxious. God, what's that about? I'm following you. I'm reading your word. Why aren't you delivering? We never say it. But that's exactly the attitude that we drag into our relationship with God. 
I see it all the time. Guys, I experienced this in my own walk with him. And all I know is that this was not the faith of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, they clearly believed that God had the power to act, and they surely asked him that he'd be willing to act. But in the end, they had a resigned acceptance to receive from his hand what he provided, so much so that their faithfulness did not depend on whether God did or didn't do what they wanted him to do. I'm just not sure that the average Christian lives like this today. And what's really mind-boggling about that is that all of us, think about this, when we were little guys and gals, learned this aspect of life from our parents. The good parents don't always give to their kids what their kids think they should do, right? Like we all learn that. That's like parenting 101. And so why is it then that we're surprised when God doesn't function that way in our lives? I, uh, some of you noticed the basketball up here. It kind of stands out. You're thinking, you know, nice stage, good worship setting. What's a basketball doing here? Uh, I brought this from home because uh, it reminded, reminds me of the very first basketball I was given. I was in first grade. I was living in Shaker Heights, Ohio, going to Onaway Elementary School. And that year, my parents gave me, for my first grade birthday, a brand new basketball. First basketball I ever got. And I was so excited to have this basketball. I had dreams of being a basketball player someday. <laughs> yeah, we can go on. Just get it out, I know. And uh, So that day at Onaway Elementary School was a show and tell. And I took my basketball, proud as a peacock, into the school that day to show everybody. And I showed them it, and it was great. We lived four blocks from the school, and I was walking home that day, and uh, a couple of second graders, I hated second graders when I was in first grade, came up behind me, and they were bullies, and they hit the ball out for me, and it flew into the street, and a car ran over it right there. Got caught under the muffler, and it popped, and it died right in front of me. So picture me, just a little guy, looking out at this basketball in the road, and I walk over, make sure it's clear, and I picked it up, and it was dead, and uh, it was ruined. And here's the thought that hit me. I'll never forget this as long as I live. I thought, I'll bet your dad will buy me a new one. I thought, you know, dad's good and he loves me. And, you know, up to this point in my life, I've been really well taken care of and it wasn't my fault. So I'll bet you'll buy me a new one. So I waited till my dad got home that night and I walked in and I showed him the basketball. And, you know, you guys have heard me talk about my dad. I mean, he was born in the Depression era. He was an only kid. His dad died when he was seven. He had to, you know, he was a self-made man. And so my dad was a tough nut. And I remember him looking at me and saying, well, that's a bummer. Your basketball got popped. He said, maybe you'll get one for your birthday next year. I remember thinking, next year? I'll be in second grade next year. I thought, I want a new one now. I didn't say that because you never said that to my dad. I mean, that would have been like a career-limiting maneuver for a child. And so I didn't say that. I just said, okay, and I walked out. And I remember scratching my head thinking, He's not going to buy me a new basketball. First time in my life I realized that you have losses in life that won't get replaced. Now, let me ask you a question. Just, just brainstorm with me for a minute. Do you think that I walked out of there with such an attitude saying, what a terrible parent. He's just an awful parent. And I, then when I went on to become like a Ted Bundy axe murderer or something like that? No, that would be ridiculous. Nobody would think that. In fact, most of us would probably say, though parenting has changed over the years, that what my dad did was a pretty good thing, that, that he, he did what a parent should do. And that is not spoil a child by replacing everything that's lost, but teach him a lesson about loss in life, even when it's not your fault. My, my dad did good. And I accepted that from his hand. I didn't turn out badly. 
I didn't cop an attitude and say, I'm never going to trust my parents again. I learned what all of you learned, because you guys could tell me hundreds of stories like this, and that's accept from your parents' hand what they give. But you see, here's the problem. We become adults, and now the stakes are higher, right? We're no longer dealing with basketballs. We're dealing with our jobs, our wives, our kids, our emotions, our finances. The stakes are a lot higher, and now we're no longer dealing with our parents, but we're dealing with God. And so it's a lot harder, I find, to have the same attitude with Him. And that's what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, well, I get what you're saying, Jamie. You're saying that God isn't going to always give me what I think I need and that I need to trust Him anyways, but i got to tell you, that's really hard and it really stinks. That's how some of us think. And you're right, it is hard, but I'm not sure that we need to see it as something that stinks. In fact, look up here on the screen. I want to show you some of the major differences between a non-demanding trust and a demanding trust. We're going to whip through these pretty quickly, but this is pretty cool. This is a difference between those who trust in God's power and willingness to deliver, but allow Him to dictate the outcome, versus those who trust in God's power and willingness to deliver only if they get to dictate the outcome. Five distinctions between these very two different modes of trust. First, a non-demanding trust honors God's will, while a demanding trust asserts your will, right? It only makes sense that when we demand from God, it's all about what our will wants. But when we trust and ask with a non-demanding spirit, we're laying our lives bare before His will. And let's think about it, folks. I think most of us have learned by now in life as followers of Jesus that it's much more important to be in the center of God's will than our will. Amen? Like, we've been in enough trouble in our lives already trying to do our own thing. We're here because we want to do God's thing. So a non-demanding trust allows us to do that. Second distinction between a non-demanding and demanding trust is that a non-demanding trust draws you close to God. And get this, a demanding trust distances you from God. Again, it's just like your kids. If your child comes to you with a demanding attitude, that's not quite an endearing thing. You don't say to your kid, gee, I'm just so drawn to you right now. Let's go out for a hamburger and Coke. You don't. You say, look, dude, don't cop an attitude like this. You're not going to get what you want if you come to me with that kind of spirit. That's what a good parent says. And God's the same. And vice versa is also true that when we come with a humble, submitted spirit before him, just like when our kids do, that draws the relationship close. This is actually biblical. God says in the book of 1 Peter, he says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So that when we are humble before him with a non-demanding spirit, believing that he can, asking that he will, the Bible says that he gives us grace. He's endeared toward us in relationship. Third distinction is that a non-demanding trust frees you up while a demanding trust limits and binds you. Now, this one's really tricky because, see, a lot of us don't see it this way. We think that if we get our will, that's going to be really freeing, right? We think that if God just does what we want, we'll be out of the woods and everything will be great. Uh Uh-uh, not true at all. I mean, that's actually not logical. The reality is like this, that when we are placing our lives squarely in the middle of God's control and care, that's the most liberating thing we can do. But if we remain in the circle of our own finite demands, that's actually binding. Again, we don't see it like that, but that's the truth. The reality is, is if you want to be liberated, then you'll come to God with a non-demanding trust and allow His will to be born in your life. And then I love this next one. A non-demanding trust breeds joy, while a demanding trust breeds disappointment and frustration. And every one of you know this one. I mean, you know that when you come to God in a demanding way, when you come to another human person in a demanding way, many times you're not going to get what you want. That breeds frustration 
and that breeds disappointment. But if you come to God with a non-demanding spirit, now get this, even if he doesn't give you what you want, you've got him. And the Bible says that whenever you have him in right relationship, you have joy. That's why some of the people in your life who are the spiritual giants that you look up to can go through very difficult times and not have God do what they want to, but they're still joyful. And you and I say, how does that work? I mean, how do you not get what you want from God and still find joy? Because you have him. And Jesus says that his presence with us is the most important thing that we need. And that his presence will never leave us. So it breeds joy, not frustration. And then lastly, a non-demanding trust unleashes God's power and help, where a demanding trust tends to limit God's power and help. Because you see, one of these things opens up your soul to God's power and grace, while the other one, a demanding spirit, closes your soul to God's power and grace. I want you to look one last time as we're wrapping up here at the story in Daniel 3, and I want to show you something pretty incredible here. As we know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego eventually get thrown into the fiery furnace, and they did so because they refused to bow. And it's so hot that the men who threw them in there, like they died just from getting too close. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego suffered no harm. The text makes that really clear. I know some of you thought, saw the text as long earlier, but one of the beautiful things about the book of Daniel, unlike some other biblical books, is that it includes a lot of detail. And the detail is really important because it gives us an understanding, a word picture of exactly what was happening back then in these events. So notice that when it says they suffered no harm, that it says not a hair got singed, none of their clothes got burned, and even the smell of smoke was not upon them. That's a lot of detail. And they're completely protected and delivered by God. And when Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace, he sees something that utterly blows him away. Look at verses 24 and 25. Look up here on the screen. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, what's that about? Uh, Christians, for about 2,000 years, have interpreted this Old Testament passage as referring to who in the fire there? Jesus, right? It's called a Christophany. That's what theologians call it. It simply means an appearance of Christ in his pre-incarnate state in the Old Testament. And there's actually some who argue, based on Colossians 1 verse 15, that says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that any time you see an appearance of God in the Old Testament, it's Jesus, because he is the image of the invisible God. That's debatable, but I tend to believe that that's true. So I tend to believe that what is happening here is that Christ is actually in the furnace with these three guys. Now, I'll be the first to admit, it's not completely clear. It could be an angel. It could be, some, it could be an angel. But, but we know at the very least that it looked like a son of the gods. That was Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. And from our understanding of the rest of the Bible, when something looks like a divine being, it's probably Jesus. And so don't miss the point here, that it very well could be that God himself was in the fiery furnace, helping and delivering his faithful followers who were trusting him no matter what, who were trusting him whether he saved them or not. And all I can tell you, folks, is that this is what God has been doing for thousands of years now. That when you and I are in the fiery furnace, when we're going through our own trials and struggles, he has promised to be there with us. Jesus said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. 
The reality is, is that as we follow him and as we trust him in a non-demanding way, at the very least, you have his presence. At the very most, you're going to get his blessing. But either way, you have him. Uh, many of you might or might not know this, but uh, one of the things that touches me so much about this church is that we pray a lot. And uh, two and a half years ago when I came here, uh, I had a couple of men, my very first Sunday, meet me out there under the roof there and say, we want to meet you every Sunday and pray for you. And sure enough, for two and a half years now, every single Sunday, the same three guys meet me out there and they pray for me. And and I tell them they have to be quick because I'm usually in a rush. And uh, it was just really hard as a pastor to say pray quick, but I tell them that. And and, and they do it. They honor that. And they pray for me there. And it's really a special time. So this morning I came in and I thought, I'll bet you they're not going to be there because I bet you they forgot the time change. But sure enough, they were right there. And they prayed for me. And one of the guys, Gary, said, uh, you know, what are you speaking on? I said, Daniel 3. And immediately he said this. It blew me away. Immediately he said, he said, Daniel 3. He said, the fact that there will be some people who go out of here today and enter into their own fiery furnace. He said, let's pray. I thought, what a great application. I hadn't even thought of that. I thought the fact that, that many of you and many of us are going to enter into this week, and it's because we have no idea what will happen this week, we might enter into our own fiery furnace. So I ask you a second time as we wrap up, what's it going to be for you? What's it going to be if that happens to you? Are you going to demand that God do your will, or are you going to accept his will and experience his presence, his peace, his joy, his closeness as a result, whether he comes through for you like you think he should or not? I'm telling you, this is what separates the men from the boys the women from the gals, when it comes to faith. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you've given us your word and that your word never disappoints us. That that on every page there's something for us that helps us think rightly about you and then live rightly with you. And God, I thank you that even in this story here that most of us have seen through childlike eyes over the years, there's something very gritty and rugged for us when it comes to our faith and trust in you. And that's it. Are we going to choose to be demanding or non-demanding? God, we thank you for the modeling of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who knew that you were able. But if not, it wasn't going to change anything about their walk with you. And so, God, my humble prayer is that we'd have the same faith. That, Lord, we'd have the kind of faith that banks on your goodness, that trusts that you're able, that asks that you will, but then it accepts from your hand what you give so that faithfulness and perseverance would be our journey. Thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit is with us. Thank you that you're with us in the fire. And we look to you now in Jesus' holy and precious name. And the whole church says together, amen. God bless you. We'll see you next week.